0: In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, it says, God heard their cry of grief. That's the basic tune being sung by several major players in the thoroughbred industry after the formation of the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. We'll examine that. Plus, you've surely heard of trainer Aidan O'Brien of Ireland and his son Joey, once a prolific rider and now an up-and-coming trainer. But we need to talk about a different O'Brien, Danny O'Brien of Australia, he had a different kind of win that could have ominous repercussions here in the states. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They and they're off as they
1: move to the top of hit the stretch. It's a hit.
0: This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. We don't need to spend a lot of time detailing the issues that thoroughbred racing here in the United States has faced this year when it comes to equine safety and on-track fatalities. Mongolian groom's breakdown in the Breeders' Cup Classic was the 37th at Santa Anita this year, although the overall fatality rate in the United States has not spiked. It's remained fairly constant for the last 10 years around 1.5 per thousand starts. Nonetheless, the Santa Anita situation has led California U.S. Senator Diane Feinstein to call for suspending racing at Santa Anita indefinitely. She wants better protection and increased transparency in doing so. California Governor Gavin Newsom has said that horse racing in the state is facing extinction. So... The operator of Santa Anita, the Stronach Group, and other major industry players, including Del Mar, Keeneland, Churchill Downs, the New York Racing Association, and Breeders' Cup Limited, have come together to form the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. This group, which collectively stages 85% of all stakes races here in the United States, is looking to implement new guidelines aimed at the safety of horses and riders. Among the items on their collective checklist are setting stricter medication guidelines, such as increasing the time that certain drugs, such as corticosteroids, have to be out of a horse's system before a race. Also, random out-of-competition drug testing, rules for the use of the whip by riders, which has come under more scrutiny in recent years, we've discussed that on this show before, mandating necropsies for all fatally injured horses, and creating a central racing surface database. To get a sense of where the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition is and where it is looking to go, we welcome in one of its primary drivers, Kevin Flannery, the president of Churchill Downs, who joins us for the first time here on In the Gate. How did the process of forming this coalition come about? Who started talking to whom and when?
1: Well, uh, a lot of tracks have been talking over, frankly, the last several years about improved safety measures And earlier this year, a number of tracks came together on some proposed Lasix reforms. And after that, post-derby time, if you will, post-Triple Crown, we really sort of started talking about what we can do immediately, you know, the, the things that we agree on. So often we are talking about things that we disagree on in the industry, but what reforms do we agree on that we can act on quickly? So in the last several months, Breeders' Cup, Keeneland, Churchill Downs, and all the other Strani Group, Delmar have been having those conversations to sort of launch this initiative and, and really move as quickly as we can for some meaningful reform.
0: What is the structure of this coalition? Who's chairing the meeting?
1: So uh, right now, it's it, there's no chair. It's all of us together in a room, sharing equal thoughts on what's going on and, and what uh, we believe in and, and what we do going forward. I think as we as we evolve, and again, one of the one of the things that we are very cognizant of is we need to not have all of the the solutions. We need to start on the things that we know we can improve on. So I think down the road we we anticipate that we will hire someone to run the day-to-day operations of this to be sort of the, the chair of the meeting, if you will, and lead us through the discussions and the research of what actions we can take next.
0: Well, right, you're talking about short-term versus long-term. And ostensibly, the coalition is trying to implement drug reforms like banning biphosphonates and rules on crop usage, among other things. But several proposed steps, including those, need the support of governments in the states that conduct thoroughbred racing. Right now, there are 38 of those. How does that affect the coalition's methodology?
1: Well, we will be a strong advocate in every jurisdiction that we're in for the reforms that we're talking about. There will be some things that we can do you know, we've announced you know the reforms we support medical operational organizational reforms those that we can accomplish without regulatory uh, oversight and approval we will those that need regulatory approval we will move through the process we've been working on some of these reforms individually now we're doing it together uh, in fact in kentucky we have a number of regulations that are going through the process uh, right along the the line of what we've proposed as part of the thoroughbred safety coalition So we, individually and collectively, will be advocates in uh, all the jurisdictions to move these reforms forward.
0: Nowhere in the drug reform part of the announcement was the mention of the diuretic drug Lasix, easily the most controversially used medication in the sport. Back in the spring, there was talk of phasing out Lasix. So what does the coalition say about Lasix?
1: So the Lasix, the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition, is about safety reforms moving forward. The, the tracks, all of the tracks that are in the coalition and many other tracks, made our position clear on LASIKs back in the spring, and that that's our position when We move forward. But we know that's, a, as you said, that's a controversial issue. We want the coalition to focus on other reforms that we think we can bring everybody under the tent and move forward collectively so that we don't let one issue waylay progress across the board.
0: Kevin Flannery, president of Churchill Downs, joins us here on In the Gate. Churchill Downs is one of the groups that will be part of the newly created Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. Now, one of the reforms you've proposed is increased out-of-competition testing. So the first question there is, how much increased testing is the coalition planning?
1: So the the important part of uh, that is the message to every trainer, every owner, every veterinarian, that any horse that is trading in the United States or anywhere else to run on a track in the United States is subject to a random out-of-competition testing. That way we know that the horse doesn't have anything in its system that uh, compromises its welfare or the integrity of the sport. With that said, we'll work out the details. We have out-of-competition testing in many jurisdictions already, but, but primarily just for stakes races. So we need to do it across the board. And that's one thing, those are the, the details in the, the blocking and tackling that we'll work on with each jurisdiction about what the right level of that is. But it's the the knowledge that it will happen is what's important for us going forward.
0: Do you expect that the amount will be left to the individual coalition tracks, or is it going to be a uniform practice, do you think?
1: So I think the question back to the state-by-state will be each year, we're going to each jurisdiction, how drug testing in competition, drug testing as well as out of competition drug testing, is done by the regulatory bodies and by the tracks, I think we'll come to a standard. What one of the things that we're really going to be working on are standards. What we think the appropriate level of testing is. What percentage of starters or horses out there that should be tested. So we will work toward a standard, and when, then we will advocate toward uh, the uniform uh, adoption
0: of that standard. And how do you expect that testing to be funded?
1: I think that uh, a lot of jurisdictions have different things, but basically the tracks end up paying for medication testing, be it through, there are different ways that are funded in different states, but uh, we're committed to this endeavor to make sure that the things we're for are funded, and we'll work with uh, each jurisdiction and each, each racetrack to make sure that we're doing it in a responsible way.
0: Not every racing organization is involved with the coalition at least not yet, but some were more conspicuous by their absence than others. The Jockey Club would be one of those though they have come out in favor of it. What are the reasons that organizations like the Jockey Club would not be part of this coalition yet?
1: Well, again, what we wanted to do was move fast. Uh, this is not this is the start for the coalition, not the not the end. So the the six of us that uh, came out uh, I think we've been very clear we want to bring other people into uh, the tent. We want different voices to be heard so that we can collectively do this. We've talked to organizations like the Jockey Club. We've talked to organizations you know, post the press conference as well. Breeders with other racetracks have been really heartened by the number of folks who've reached out and said, how can we be a part of it? So what we don't want to do is wait until we have everything accomplished to move forward on meaningful reform. So, This is the start. It's our our bellwether to say, hey, we're moving forward. Come join us.
0: The Horse Racing Integrity Act, which is still working its way through Congress, if they can ever get around to doing anything other than impeachment, would establish an independent government controlled organization to implement and enforce rules on medication in the sport. So what does this coalition mean for the future of the act?
1: Well, I think, as you just said, federal legislation doesn't happen overnight and we want to act now. So what we're going to do is identify those issues that we can push going forward, medication reform, obviously a big part of that, and move now and not have to wait for someone else to act.
0: One potential reason for the spate of equine fatalities, I think, is the increasing fragility of the breed. I mean, horses now start an average of 12 times versus over 30 back in the 1970s. And Breeders and owners want loads of speed, particularly at early ages, potentially at the expense of sturdiness. Even if all of the coalition's reforms are implemented as fully as you hope, what role does the fragility of the breed play in horse safety?
1: I think one of the things that the coalition has clearly tried to state is we're going to rely on data. And, you know, this is in this age of data where there is so much information, we need to embrace that across the board uh, we're looking at trying to combine different databases, be they the equine injury database. We need to create a database that gives us more information about racetrack makeup. And I think that's where the future has to be, is we gather data so that instead of assuming or presuming that something is an issue, we've got the data to, to show, are there patterns that we can address? And I think that goes across the entire thoroughbred industry and the life of the thoroughbred in the uh, industry.
0: Well, let's just for argument's sake say that data backs up what I just mentioned. Does the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition envision going to owners and breeders and saying, we need to maybe do away with the breeze up sales and things of that nature that focus on early career speed?
1: I I don't want to speculate on what the data will be. I think we need to, to look at what the data is be across everything not just one particular element, and then make informed decisions at that point rather than, you know, sort of speculate. I think often folks are looking for, you know, one thing that will solve the various challenges we have, and in reality, we have a lot of things that, that we can improve on. And we're doing a lot of good things, too. I mean, I think there's been a lot of movement across the industry over the last, you know, 10 years for reform, and so let's let us let the data tell us what the next steps are.
0: So what is the next step we should expect to see with this coalition?
1: So I think a couple of things. One is you're going to have some announcements from individual racetracks, I think, over the next several weeks and several months of things that we're taking individually to improve. We've set forth the medical, operational, and organizational reforms, but there are many other things we're working on, simple things, Barry, like uh, at Churchill Downs we talked with our horsemen about training in the morning, Uh, so we introduced a second break so that we could refresh the track. We reserved 10 minutes after one of the breaks for horses that are working to, to improve the traffic flow. And we're begging, borrowing and stealing from other tracks, their best practices. So I think you'll see some announcements of changes like that at the individual tracks. And then I, I do believe that we'll have some folks who will join the coalition. I certainly hope that that's the case and believe that's the case. So you'll see more strength coming on board and then um, most impactful will be going to different jurisdictions and, and advocating and we'll be announcing what we're focused on, where we're focused on advocating and trying to push for reforms. And uh, and then finally, I guess, is to to your point earlier, as we've identified some of these issues, setting standards as we go forward for uh, where we want to be, what the goal is on the individual tactic that we're looking at.
0: Kevin Flannery is the president of Churchill Downs, a member of the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition. Thank you so much for your time, sir.
1: Thank you, Barry. I appreciate it.
0: Speaking of drug reform, we're going to examine what a race in Australia could mean here in the States when it comes to trainers, drug rules, and penalties. That's next, when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Just under three years ago, in January of 2016, a pair of Australian trainers were banned when horses in their barns tested positive for cobalt. Cobalt is a naturally occurring substance that boosts red blood cell production and therefore increases stamina. One of those trainers, Danny O'Brien, faced a four-year ban when four of his horses were cited for cobalt. Now you have to understand how successful Danny O'Brien had been up to that point. He had close to 200 horses in his stable. Think Todd Pletcher and had won around $40 in U.S. dollars and 17 Group 1 races in his career. Naturally, Danny O'Brien fought the ban, and after a lengthy appeal, the ban was overturned in February of 2018. The judge said that the trainer was ultimately responsible for bringing the horses to the races with cobalt in their systems, but the judge added that the trainer did not know that the vet had given the horses cobalt so he reinstated O'Brien. Want to take a guess at who trained the winner of this month's Melbourne Cup? The race that stops a nation? Fowler Declare
1: back to the inside, two legs Prince of Aaron. Then came Hunting Horn, Il Paradiso, late Master of Reality with Fowler Declare on the inside. Then Prince of Aaron Raymond Tusk, Finch. It's Master of Reality, Fowler Declare up on the inside. Fowler Declare, Prince of Aaron is lifting late with Il Paradiso. Master of Reality just in front, Fowler Declare kicks! Fowler Declare's won for Australia, they will the world! will we'll win the Lexus Melbourne Cup.
0: So there was Danny O'Brien, whose positive testing horses from 2014 were disqualified from their races and the prize money forfeited. That same Danny O'Brien winning the biggest race in the country. What if that kind of story happened here in light of the scrutiny horse racing has faced in this tumultuous year? Well, for some perspective on this story, we welcome into to In The Gate for the first time Mick Lynch, who writes about racing for the Australian publication The Age. First of all, how did the Danny O'Brien winning the Melbourne Cup story play against the backdrop of the Cobalt story?
2: Well, Danny O'Brien vociferously fought it. You know, there was a long battle, uh, arguments over the administration, who administered it, how much knowledge or intelligence trainers could have, could they be held responsible for every iota of what went on. The upshot of the case ended up being that O'Brien and Kavanaugh was still training. O'Brien, uh, who's a younger man than Mark Cavanaugh, uh, Danny, I think, was in his mid-40s when this happened. I think he's late 40s now. And he bounced back very, very strongly. I mean, he's got re- enormous reserves of self-belief and self-confidence, and it set his business back massively, you can imagine, you know, with a specter of a disqualification hanging over him for so long. He lost owners, he lost horses. When others were retired, he didn't have owners, you know, buying new stock for him. So he had to go out and, and retool and reinvest himself largely and find owners, handful of clients stuck fast with him. But it's been a rebuild over the last three to four years for Danny O'Brien. But boy, hasn't he bounced back very strongly now because not only did he win the Melbourne Cup with one of the very few locally bred horses in the field, vow and declare uh, he won the Melbourne Cup with his horse he also won the Oaks four days later with a filly which will have some American residents her name was Miami Bound so he's had a pretty good four days at Flemington
0: but I mean what did the public think you know they know the story of Danny O'Brien and the Cobalt then he wins the Melbourne Cup are they thinking that O'Brien and Mark Cavanaugh the other trainer whose band was overturned got away with one
2: I don't really think the public thought that much, to be honest about it, because there's been so many of these cobalt cases, and the, and the allegations against O'Brien go, went back five, six years, I think, and there's so many trainers, including some of the real up-and-coming young stars who've been swept up in this kind of net, and they're all fighting these cases, and they're all appealing against various judgments, The science is being challenged, the threshold levels, all sorts of things. And I think for the public, by and large, it's sort of become a kind of soap opera that no one's watching anymore. So for Danny O'Brien to win a Melbourne Cup, the big story really was not so much Danny O'Brien, but it was Craig Williams, the jockey, winning his first ever Melbourne Cup. As far as the public were concerned, I think not so much Danny O'Brien, but Craig Williams, who's been eight-time champion jockey in Victoria, been a, a Group 1 winning rider in Europe, ridden with distinction in Hong Kong, never managed a Melbourne Cup.
0: Well, thinking back to the Cobalt case as best you can, what do you make of the judge in that case saying that the trainer didn't know about the vet giving the horse Cobalt? In other words, they were not considered negligent.
2: Yeah, well, that was the the judgment at uh, the Appeals Tribunal, I think. Uh, I only covered part of this story. I wasn't sort of on it all the time, and and part of it is testing my memory because it goes back some way. But I guess the judge rules what the judge rules, and they are the new rules that you play by, don't you? You know, the judge exonerated them. Some will say it was maybe on a technicality, and how did the trainers not know But um, the judge found to his satisfaction that that was the case. So, you know, the laws of libel, the laws of the land, uh, even if we're talking in the United States, um, you, you cannot go go beyond what is actually a proven statement or an on-the-record statement. So that is really pretty much all we can say. The, the judge produced his ruling, said it was the vet, the trainers weren't negligible, and that's, that's history now, that's... That's the ruling from which everything else is flown, And Danny was able to come back and build his business up on the back of that. And he would always protested his innocence all the way through it.
0: The vet who administered the Cobalt to the horses was given a five-year ban. Do you consider this an isolated incident or a growing trend where the vets are on the hook but the trainers are not?
2: well i guess it depends i mean if the vets decide to inject or put something into a resource that they know is in contravention of the rules and they do so without the trainer's knowledge well obviously i i guess it's a bit like ministerial responsibility you know in the old days and I grew up in Britain where we had cabinet government and a tradition of ministerial responsibility. In those days, if a, a civil servant or a government official, senior government official leaked something sensitive in a particular department, the minister would resign because it was about collective responsibi- uh, responsibility, cabinet responsibility. Now they tend not to. They'll say, well, I, how can I be... Uh, expected to know the minutiae of every little thing and i guess that's the defense racing stables now they have so many horses there are so many complex rules and regulations and trainers may well say i didn't exactly know i trust this vet i didn't know what he was doing
0: but why would a vet inject a horse with cobalt without a trainer knowing it what does the vet get out of that
2: I don't know, mate. I mean, as I said, the laws of libel, uh, I think, will um, perhaps uh, suggest that you have to be circumspect when in a public forum, when we discuss this sort of issue. I I really don't know. One can surmise many things, but uh, whether or not one can say them in a public forum is another matter.
0: What has been Danny O'Brien's attitude toward the Cobalt story in the year or so since the overturning of the ban? Has it been contrition, defiance, or let's just get back to business?
2: Well, I think Danny O'Brien's whole stance throughout the entire situation, long before the ban or the threat of suspension or disqualification was hanging over it has always been I am not guilty and I'm going to prove it. Now uh, tempers obviously get heated emotions run high but throughout the entire Cobalt campaign and as I said I didn't cover every jot and tittle of this campaign I wasn't there for all the hearings and all the stewards meetings I have a sort of overview of it but my understanding of Danny and talking to him at the races every time he said we are going to beat this charge because we are guilty and so was he contrite was he defiant I'd just say he was exactly the same you know he he feels vindicated and he's now I presume feeling that that vindication is is even more validated by the performance of his horses during the biggest week in Australian racing
0: Mick Lynch, who writes about horse racing for the Australian publication The Age, joins us here on In The Gate. How aware are Australian racing fans and media of the scrutiny this sport is facing here in the United States?
2: Look, they're very aware. Um, you know, we, I mean, I write to the Sydney Morning Herald as well as The Age. We're, we're two of the, the major publications. Uh, I don't know what the American equivalents might be, maybe... New York Times, that sort of, you know, we, we go national even though we're we're based in, ver- in particular cities. And we've given a lot of coverage to the problems, uh, particularly emanating from Santa Anita in California and the, the Breeders' Cup tragedy. That was something racing in America needed like a hole in the head. I mean, animal welfare issues are massive and growing even more uh, importantly over... The last year, last two years throughout the kind of, if you like, western world where racing jurisdictions face ever, ever greater scrutiny. I think the feeling here in, um, about American racing in general is that drugs are used way too much in America. And a lot of the problems with horses breaking down in the United States, the nature of dirt racing and the surfaces are allied to the amount of drugs that are used to mask other ailments and keep the show on the road. There is a feeling here that it is far too drug dependent, and that is a big part of the the problem there. And that leads to you know shocking headlines, and we you know we you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, California, all these places you know because of i guess the entertainment industry and the movie industry people in australia would be maybe as familiar with los angeles and california as many people from the midwest of the u.s who've never been there because you know it's part of the kind of lexicon of our entertainment industry and partly seeped into our culture so things that happen in california uh will get traction in our media be it politics be it uh, sport and when a, a big story like the Santa Anita problems with racing fatalities breaks they get a lot of traction here because racing is starting to fill the pinch from the animal welfare lobby here too
0: oh is that right what has been happening in terms of that
2: there's a big debate about the whip, of course, and the desirability or of, otherwise of using the whip in racing. And then about uh, a month ago, one of the the national public broadcasters, uh, I don't know what your equivalent in the U.S. is, uh, in England it's the BBC, here it's the ABC, but a kind of public service broadcaster, they did a kind of horror show about what happens to ex-race horses once they're deemed as no use
0: Yes, I did I did see that.
2: Yeah, and they can't be rehomed or repurposed and how some of them are just sent to slaughterhouses and treated well abominably really and you know, and cruelly and, and I think that actually says a lot more about slaughterhouse practice than it does about racing people, but it's easier to put the blame on the racing industry and say you have a duty of care to former horses your equine athletes who you tell us you love so much yet when they're no longer of any money-making purpose for you you get rid of them to knackeries and you don't really care what happens to them afterwards so that that was a pretty horrific story and there were some very graphic scenes that were um, illustrated and shown in that film now there were questions about that too because the people who made the film said they'd sat on some of this footage for two years while they were getting more and more of it so you do have to ask a bit maybe why did they sit on it for so long they might probably argue that they were doing it to have an even bigger impact to save more horses down the track i don't know but whatever the rationale it hit a raw nerve i guess everybody in racing knew this kind of thing was going on but it was not so much racing dirty little secret, but it was out of sight, out of mind. Let's not talk about it. Let's not, if you if you like, frighten the horses. And and they certainly did frighten the horses once it got out. But it did spawn very quickly a rapid response with you know people, the racing authorities, very quick to pledge more money millions of dollars more for equine welfare develop horse tracking systems to be able to monitor where horses go after they finish their racing days uh, with two or three different owners so hopefully that will nip in the bud any future complaints
0: you talked about drugs and the australian media and fans discouraging drug use as as we have here in the united states But the drug we're talking about right now is cobalt, and you talked about Peter Moody being the third of those trainers who was cleared of deliberately trying to give cobalt to a horse. So that's three high-profile trainers, all cleared of knowingly giving cobalt. Does that smell rotten in Denmark to you? (laughs) Look, as I said,
2: I didn't cover... Every minute of these cases, I was dipping in and out. All I can say is that the judicial system within the racing industry prosecuted the cases. They were heard and various judgments were made. And I think Moody was, was done for presenting, I think, rather than administrative. Uh, you sound as if you've made a study tremendously uh, before this uh before this interview, and your memory is fresher than mine, I suspect. I think Peter was charged with presentation, wasn't he, rather than uh, administering. He got his ban. He decided that it was all too tough and he didn't want to carry on.
0: Now, the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, the IFHA, and other industry trade groups would like to see the rules of racing standardized around the world, including things like Lasix, not to go down that rabbit hole. So, given the overturning of these suspensions, which, to be clear, was done by a governmental arbiter, not within the sport, but what kind of precedent does this set for trainers in other countries when it comes to knowingly versus unknowingly administering drugs?
2: Yeah, look, it's, it's a real difficult one, isn't it? Because as you've said, you know, various policies in different jurisdictions all have a different way of looking at things. I think probably the easiest and safest thing to do would just be to say a zero-tolerance policy, wouldn't they? Just nothing. You know, you just present with any form of medication at all that's you Gonski the horse is disqualified and sure that's a very very blunt instrument and some people are going to be swept up in it and perhaps punished in a way that seems draconian but maybe given you know Racing's got a public struggle. You know, you talked about the problems in in California and I've touched on them here. You know, racing has to continue to function with what we call in this country and maybe in America a social license. Do you you know what I mean? It's got to be sanctioned by society, you know, uh, otherwise it won't last very long. And maybe, maybe even if a few people get put out, disqualified through no fault of their own because of a drug-free policy that they knew nothing of and their horse gets disqualified. Maybe that is a small price to pay for the greater industry globally being able to continue in the way it is because um, social media has opened up so many more platforms for people to express an opinion. Legislators across every area of the world are increasingly hypersensitive aren't they to what they see on twitter and facebook and instagram and we know that it's the loudest voices who shout who tend to get heard and the squeaky wheels that get oiled and they may not be representative of the wider public but if they are the ones who the legislators are listening to um you know r- racing may have to look to its laurels so perhaps there does just have to be very very tough strictures
0: These things that happen around the world make the world a smaller place, and the United States could feel the ramifications of what goes on in Australia these days. So thank you so much for bringing our audience up to speed on this, uh, Mick Lynch. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Our thanks to Kevin Flannery and to Mick Lynch. In the Gate has run since February 2012, two years before the podcast market boom. Few, if any, at that time were devoted to horse racing. Now podcasting in this space has mushroomed. So much so that the group charged with promoting the sport of kings, America's Best Racing held a vote to see which podcast fans preferred, part of the Fan Choice Awards, but I realized it was missing a critical note. You see, my friends, America's best racing left us out. They didn't make us one of the choices. And while I applaud the others who make shows and cover racing with a welcome plethora of erudite voices, I look forward to the day that in the gate is recognized for the healthy perspective and insight we provide. The curious and skeptical approach to journalism in reporting on racing brings us a sense of pride you can get us on our youtube channel by searching in the gate podcast you can get us on soundcloud as well get us in the itunes store or TuneIn.com. you can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone or anywhere you get your podcasts and now you can subscribe to in the gate in the listen tab of the espn app for the full in the gate experience subscribe now in the listen tab of the espn app and you can follow me on twitter at the abrams voice or on facebook at barry abrams voice that's in the gate for this week i'm barry abrams we'll see you next time